Lord, what a beautiful song. Uh, you are our all in all, and we come to exalt you. You are worthy. Lord, thank you for redeeming us, saving us, making a way for us to come to the Father. We give you thanks. Please uh, speak to us today as we read your words. May you stimulate our mind. May you warm our hearts, touch our will, that we were determined to serve you. Amen. We continue our series on uh, the Twelve Apostles. I came across this uh, cartoon or whatever you call it, the idealist versus the pragmatist. The idealist say, hey, dude, I have so many ideas that would revolutionize life on earth and bring awesomeness to mankind. And the pragmatic just folded his arm and said, well, how about you just take out the rubbish and do the dishes for once? Well, we're looking at uh, Philip, the Apostle Philip today. And by all accounts, he seems to be a pragmatist, very practical person, very logical. And we're going to investigate that. There are four accounts in the scripture, all in the John Gospel, that tells us a little bit about Philip. And of all the four biblical lists of the twelve disciples, the fifth name on every list is Philip, which appears to signify that Philip was the leader of the second group. There are twelve disciples and it's break up into three groups. The first group we have just covered, Peter, James, John and Andrew, two sets of brothers. And today we're going to cover the second group, Philip, Nathaniel, Thomas and Matthew. And the last group will be the last four that are very, very little information we have from the scripture about them other than Judas. Philip means lover of horses. It's a Greek name. He, of all the, all the disciples are Jew, so he must have a Jewish name, but we don't know. Uh, but his Jewish name is never given to us. As we all know, the Greek civilization spread through the Mediterranean after the conquest of Alexander the Great in the 4th century. And many people in the Middle East had adopted the Greek language, Greek culture, and uh, Greek customs. And these people, they are known as the Hellenists, as we no? And perhaps Philip came from a family of Hellenistic Jews. They are Jews, but they adopted Greek culture, custom, and language. And of course, the most famous Philip in Greek history was Philip of Macedon, which of course is the father of Alexander the Great. And Philip with his Gentile name suggests that his parents probably were not a traditional or conservative Hebrews, but more liberal-minded Hellenists. They are open to a cultural reality beyond the Jewish world. Please do not confuse the Apostle Philip with Philip the Evangelist mentioned in the book of Acts, chapter 6. One of the deacons, one of the seven deacons that became an evangelist and led the Ethiopian eunuch to Christ 
is not the same Philip, all right? That is Philip the evangelist, and what we're talking about is the apostle Philip, which we have no account uh, after what he uh, went on to do. He's from Bethsaida, which is the same of Andrew and Peter, and uh, they probably were friends. Uh, as I already mentioned, Matthew, Mark, and Luke give no details of Philip. We only have four accounts of Philip in John's Gospel. He was a kind of facts and figures person, a guy. is by the book, practical-minded, probably not very forward-thinking type of individual. He tends to be pessimistic as we're going to look at it. Uh, Sometimes missing the big picture when he's too concerned about the details. You know, when we are detailed, we sometimes get overlooked the, the big picture because we are so concerned about details. And he often obsessed with identifying reason things can't be done rather than finding ways to do them. He's probably a cynic, a pragmatist, pragmatic, and sometimes can be also a defeatist. So I want to, uh, from the little time we have, look at four accounts in John Gospel and just give a brief command. command. Some will be a little bit longer, but don't panic, we'll finish uh, right on time. The first one is the calling account. John chapter 1, 43 to 46, uh, showed to us his calling by Jesus uh, to follow him. It says here, the next day Jesus decided to leave for Galilee. Finding Philip, he said to him, follow me. Follow me. Philip, like Andrew and Peter, was from the town of Bethsaida. Philip found Nathanael and told him, we have found the one Moses wrote about in the law and about whom the prophets also wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nazareth? Can anything good come from there, Nathaniel asked. Philip simply said, come and see. Come and see. That's all he asked. Come and see. Now let me just draw a few things to you from this uh, account of the calling account. The first one I thought I'd just briefly mention is that many people seem to always ask, what's the resolution between our salvation? Is it God's calling or is it your decision? Yeah, you know, theologically it is divided whether you're Calvinist or Armenian, uh, whether you're sovereign election, or is it ultimately you make a decision. And scripture seems to suggest both sides of it. But here in this account, it seems to bring these two together. It is both, isn't it? Jesus said, follow me. And yet from Philip's perspective, he said, we have found the one Moses wrote about in the law. Uh, this is not a time to explore that, but from a human perspective, this was the end of his search. So he kind of bring these two things together. It's God's sovereign choice of election because salvation is ultimately God's work in people's life. But at the same time, it is you who is making the decision. Two things I want to mention about what we can learn about Philip from this little account. The first thing is that Philip shares what he has discovered. When he, when he discovered about Christ, followed him, he found Nathanael. And he said to Nathanael, we have found the one Moses wrote about in the law. And then later on, he simply just said, come 
and see. Interestingly, uh, I'll leave it to Caroline to talk about Nathaniel next week. Uh, he seems to have a very dim account of Nazareth. He said, can anything good come out from there? And Philip simply just said, come and see. You know, sometimes we don't always need to answer every question that people, all the objection people have about suffering in this world, about why God is good and yet they send people to hell, you know, all these kind of things. Sometimes we may not have the, and people may not have the capacity to, to digest. All that we can say is, come and see. Come and see. What a great invitation to people. Come and see. And Jesus do that as well. In, uh, in John chapter 1, verse 39, before that, uh, Jesus, uh, or, or Samaritan woman, Samaritan woman account of uh, Jesus, uh, she went on to tell people, come and see a man who told me everything I had done before. And Jesus in John 1 chapter 9 said that to Andrew as well. Uh, where do you live? Andrew asked Jesus, where do you live? He said, come and see. Just come and see. And then in Matthew 28, the angel's account in the resurrection, the angel said to the woman, Do not be afraid, for I know that you are looking for Jesus who was crucified. He is not here. He has risen, just as he said. Come and see the place where he lived. It's a great invitation. Come and see. Come and see. Let people encounter Christ. Christianity is about knowing Jesus, not just knowing details about the life of Jesus, but knowing Jesus. Come and see. Come and encounter Him. Come and find out yourself, trusting that the Holy Spirit will do the work. Don't be ashamed of the church. Don't be embarrassed about the preacher, what the topic the person is going to preach. Don't be embarrassed about the songs. Be confident in the work of the Holy Spirit. He is the converter, not us. He will use every means to bring forth salvation. Be confident. Come and see. Like Philip introduced someone. And second thing that I can, we can learn about Philip from this calling account is that he knows the scripture and he's a true seeker. Just now we have mentioned, he said, we have found the one Moses wrote about in the law. How did he know? Unless he knows the scripture. We have found the one Moses wrote about in the law and about whom the prophets also wrote. Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. All this prophecy that is pointing to us one person, the Messiah will come in the future. And he is here. You know, my friend, we, Philip knows the scripture and is a true seeker. I think in this modern age, uh, we need to go back to the word of God. We need to have discernment. Discernment comes from knowing God's word. You can't have discernment without knowing God's word. We need discernment in this age, especially since heresies are prevailing with information age with fingertips technology on our lives. There are hundreds and thousands and millions of things that you can get from internet, even among Christianity. You can hear all kinds of people, all kinds of messages. You need discernment. Not just only being stirred emotionally, you need to sharpen our mind as well. Discernment is the art of seeing through the surface of things, through their core. 
or peering beyond appearances to the deeper truth. And we discernment comes from knowing God's word. When we know God's word, we can discern. Sinclair Ferguson, a biblical scholar, he says, true discernment means not only distinguishing the right from the wrong. It means distinguishing the primary from the secondary, the essential from the indifferent, and the permanent from the transient. And yes, it means distinguishing between the good and the better, and even between the better and the best. Discernment. Not just good and bad, but more than that. We need that even as believers in the church. We need to discern what is permanent, what is transient, what is uh, uh, secondary, what is primary, that we don't always need to fight over secondary issues. We need discernment on this kind of things. Second account of Philip comes from John again, chapter 6, on the feeding of the 5,000. That's where his pragmatism comes in. Um, here, by the way, the feeding of the 5,000 is the only miracle other than the resurrection of Jesus that appears in the four gospels. And, and here, Jesus looked up and saw a great crowd coming towards him. And then he said to Philip, Where shall we buy bread for these people to eat? And then verse 6 is important. Because Jesus, John Gospel says, Jesus asked this only to test him. For Jesus already had in mind what he was going to do. That means to say that Jesus wasn't testing Philip so that Jesus could find out what Philip was like. Jesus was testing Philip so that Philip would discover what he really was like. It is for him, not for Jesus. He asked this question to help Philip to discover what he was like. You know, we do not know ourselves. The fact of the matter is we think that we know ourselves, but the reality is we do not know ourselves. Uh, the school of relationship is where we truly learn self-knowledge. In relationship, you discover by yourself. After I married my wife, I discovered tremendous things about myself. I think I'm such a patient man. <laughs> but I discovered I'm not. I, I thought I'm a very kind man, but I'm not. It, dis it helps you to discover about yourself. The school of relationship is where we truly learn self-knowledge. And more than that, Bible is best in revealing who we are. The Bible is a mirror to reveal your heart to yourself. And Jesus here asked question to Philip. is not so that he knows about Philip. It's to help Philip to discover about himself. And as we read the scripture, as we go through trials and lives, as we live in the community, we discover about ourselves. We discover about ourselves. And here, Philip answered Jesus. It would take more than half a year's wages to buy enough bread for each one to have a bike. And some versions specifically say eight months' wages. 
There is 200 denarius. One denarii is a normal person's wage. So 200 denarii is about eight months. And here, eight months to buy enough bread just for one bike. And probably some of the people have a bigger bike. <laughs> and maybe some mothers only take a little bit bite so as to reserve for the children. Um, but interestingly, Philip still cannot see about what Jesus can do. Because he, he had been there when the Lord created wine out of water. He had, been, he had seen miracles of healing, casting out demons. And despite of all that he has seen, he still cannot believe that Jesus can do the impossible. Still cannot see it. I don't know how much evidence is sufficient to propel the level of faith. But whatever it is, he's still unable to see it. He's a pragmatic guy, logical guy, calculating the number of people, 5,000 men plus women, 10,000 plus children. They say 15 to 20,000 people. How to feed those people, even if you have the money, where to buy food? There was no Uber. Even Uber also can't do it. He knew too much aromatic to be adventurous. And the reality of the raw facts clouded his faith. He was entrapped with common sense calculations that he didn't see the opportunity the situation presented. I'll tell you one Chinese word. Chinese word opportunity is two Chinese words put together called Wei Ji. Wei Ji Ji is opportunity, Wei is dangerous. Danger. So when you put the two together, Wei Ji means there is opportunity in danger as well. And when we uh, uh, common sense calculation of Philip, he, he doesn't be able, he won't able to see it. He should have just said, Lord, you want to feed them, then you feed them. I'm just going to stand back and watch how you do it. You can do it, Lord. Do it. You made wine at Cana and you fed your children manna in the wilderness. Do it. We'll tell everybody to get in line. You just make the food. You know, that would have been great, wouldn't it? That would have been the right response. But Philip was convinced it simply couldn't be done. The limitless supernatural power of Christ had completely escaped his thinking. It can't be done. And Philip needed to learn that lesson. Everything seems impossible to him. He needed to set aside his materialistic, pragmatic, common sense concerns. Not to say that those are not important. You can always have both and learn to lay hold of the supernatural potential of faith. Reminding himself that when God is in the equation, he is always in the majority. Now we have, uh, we have to move on. The third account is the visit of Greek's account in John chapter 12. When Jesus was preaching, there were some Greeks among them who went up to worship at the festivals. And then they asked Andrew, they approached Andrew, oh, sorry, Philip. They approached Philip first, and then Philip approached Andrew. He approached Philip, they approached Philip and said, we wish to see Jesus. Would you be able to do the connection for us? We want to see Jesus. Again, the Greeks approached 
someone with the name Philip, who is a Greek name. It's powerful, isn't it? Sometimes we are drawn to our own people in some sense. Yes, we believe in mission work and all that, but naturally when we gravitate, we, we know the culture, you know the language, sometimes it's easier. Some, maybe these Greeks know Philip is a, is, a, is a Greek as well. Maybe he can do the connection for us. So they went to see Philip and and Philip didn't know what to do. Philip uh, went to see Andrew, and Andrew and Philip in turn told Jesus. We do not know whether or not the request was granted. There was no account of that. But when they approached Jesus and said to Jesus, this Greeks wish to see you. And the scripture simply says that Jesus replied. Replied. The question or reply what, we don't know. Because the reply doesn't seem like the answering the question in a sense. Because you say, this group of people want to see Jesus. All right, uh, make a time, 3 p.m. or something like that. But the, the response, the reply uh, is completely not what the question is. Uh, Jesus simply said, now the time has come for the Son of Man to enter his glory. In other words, the time of his death is here. But again, we can go into saying that. Did you realize that Jesus never looked at crucifixion? He simply looked past that and said, it's time for the Son of Man to enter into his glory. Crucifixion is only one part of it that goes to the glory. But he never talked about that. Other parts of scripture, he said that. But this time, he simply said, it's time for the Son of Man to enter into his glory. I tell you the truth, unless a kernel of wheat is planted in the soil and dies, it remains alone. But its death will produce many new kernels, a plentiful harvest of new lives. Those who love their life in this world will lose it. Those who care nothing for their life in this world will keep it for eternity. Jesus used the image of a seed to illustrate the great spiritual truth that there can be no glory without suffering, no fruitful life without death, no victory without surrender. And of itself, a seed is weak and useless, but when it is planted, it dies and becomes fruitful. So there is both bounty and beauty when a seed dies and fulfills its purpose. If a seed could talk, it would no doubt complain about being put into the cold, dark earth. But the only way it can achieve its goal is by being planted. And we, God's children, are like seeds. They are small and insignificant, but they have life in them and God's life. When it is planted, into the dark, cold earth, it produces something beautiful out of it, isn't it? As a football coach says to their players, I will always make you do what you don't want to do, what you drag doing, so as to achieve what you have always dreamed for. And life sometimes is like that. We need to die to ourselves in order for fruitful living to flourish. The last account is the passage 
that Pastor Caroline has read to us in John chapter 14, which we call it the Upper Room Account, or the Farewell Discourse, Jesus' Final Night on Earth. He dealt with two questions, one from Thomas and one from Philip. But we are only going to deal with Philip, and we leave the question that Thomas asked to later. If you really know me, because Philip basically asked Jesus, show us the Father. Show us the Father. That will be enough. And Jesus answered Philip, If you really know me, you will know my Father as well. From now on, you do know him, and you have seen him. But Philip said, Show us the Father, and that will be enough for us. And then Jesus answered, Don't you know me, Philip, even after I have been among you such a long time? Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. So how can you say, show us the Father? Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. Jesus is the image of the invisible God, says Paul in Colossians. It's kind of sad in the sense because Jesus thought you would hope that by this time he already got the point. This is two years after he's been chosen. This is so many years after his sin in the process of being trained. And uh, Jesus has taught, shown, and many things. And yet he still says, show us the Father. Jesus is the image of the invisible God. Jesus is saying, I and the Father are one. You see me, you see the Father. It's identical. Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. Jesus said, what you're asking for is redundant. There is not one particle of difference between the Father and me. What he is, I am. What he says, I say. What he does, I do. If you have seen me, you have seen him. If I were to show you him, I would simply be showing you myself. Don't you realize that for the past 33 years, I have been the visible expression of the invisible God? I am God, and he is God, except that I am God manifest in flesh. Ever since I was born, I have been giving people a moment-by-moment, three-dimensional, full high-definition, full-colored, audio-visual demonstration of God. When you see me, you see God. And Philip learned. Of course he learned. This part of his training, part of his journey. And tradition tells us that as ordinary as he was, Philip was greatly used of God. And he was martyred and crucified. He labored diligently for the Lord. He lived the rest of the life, obeying the Great Commission, preaching the gospel, 
to throughout Upper Asia. And his missionary journey came to an end when he suffered martyrdom at Heropolis in Persia. He was scorched, thrown in prison, and crucified like his savior. And interestingly, in 2011, they found his tomb. They discovered his tomb in Papukale, Denizil, something like that province in southwestern Turkey in 2011. That's the life of Philip. And he maintained his zeal for the Lord. And he changed. He went and preached the gospel. And he died for the Lord. Heavenly Father, we thank you for showing us from your word briefly who Philip is. Thank you for his life. Thank you for showing us the training process that you brought him through to train him to be a man and woman of God. Lord, may we always seek to surrender our life to you because where there is no surrender, there is no victory. Where there is no death, there is no life. So we ask for your blessing. As we sing this song, we are reminded again that we are not our own. We belong to you. In Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand?